Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. America is a land of freedom, prosperity, and opportunity, which requires a strong military to preserve and protect those qualities. American forces deter adversaries, reassure our allies, and when necessary, win in war. Unfortunately, this vital tool is in disrepair. After the Cold War, national leaders cut military spending for decades, convinced that major war was obsolete. Our enemies and competitors disagree. On 9-11, we learned that the world is as dangerous as ever. And today, China, Russia, and others are investing heavily in the capacity to challenge the U.S. military anytime, anywhere, including space and cyberspace. Meanwhile, our military largely relies on 1980s equipment purchased when cell phones weighed almost two pounds, and years of fighting in the Middle East have delayed vital modernization. America's forces remain the world's strongest for now, but decades of decline will take years to reverse. The Heritage Foundation's Index of U.S. Military Strength is an important resource in this task and the only report of its kind on the true condition of our military. Check out the data at heritage.org military. Please welcome the Heritage Foundation's Executive Vice President, Dr. Kim Holmes. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation. Uh, welcome all of you here in the uh, auditorium and everyone online as well. It's, uh, it's a great pleasure uh, for us to be back in the building of the Heritage Foundation. We've been away for some time on teleworking, but uh, this is my first day back for a while. But I'm very pleased to be back here today for this very important event of launching the Heritage Foundation's 2021 Index of U.S. Military Strength. Now, this is the seventh edition of the Index. And the index has become a, uh, one of Heritage Foundation's flagship publications. Our goal is unchanged from the very first issue. Uh, it is to provide both uh, the leaders uh, of this country and also the American public a premier open source and authoritative assessment of America's armed forces and their ability to protect the nation. I think that uh, we have not uh, only achieved that goal, but we have continued with this effort. And this year's edition is the best ever. In addition to its usual breadth of subjects, our index always incorporates new national security concerns. And one of these is the emergent concern of space and the work of the new Space Force. We have a new chapter on uh, the subject of space this year, and we look forward to hearing more from Dakota Wood, uh, the editor of the Index, about this new material in his presentation later. Today, as part of our Index launch, we warmly welcome a speaker with decades of experience in defense matters, Representative Mac Thornberry. A native Texan, he was the first elected to Congress in 1994 and has supported a strong national defense since. He's currently the ranking member of the House Armed Services Committee and he has served as a committee's chairman from 2015 to 2019. He has sponsored or co-sponsored a number of bills to make the Department of Defense not only more effective, but also more innovative in its work. 
he has consistently endeavored to ensure that our armed services receive the funding they need to defend the nation. Congressman Thornberry has made it his mission to help educate the American public about its military. And to that end, he has written extensively about the importance of our military and its status. There is quite simply no other member of Congress who is more respected or more thoughtful on defense matters. It therefore comes as no surprise, or should come as no surprise, that this year's National Defense Authorization Act is actually named after him. Mr. Thornberry is retiring from Congress this year, so we are grateful to have the opportunity to hear his thoughts about how to strengthen our military in the years to come. So it is now my great pleasure to welcome Congressman Mac Thornberry to the stage. Well, thank you, Dr. Holmes. I, I appreciate that uh, very kind introduction. And, and I would also like to congratulate the defense team here at Heritage uh, for producing the 2021 Index of U.S. Military Strength. It's, it's always uh, quite an undertaking and an accomplishment that gives all of us a better understanding of where we are and what we face. I think the 2021 snapshot is important in its own right, but it's particularly helpful because it's the seventh one, and that helps us all see trends and, and where we are not making up ground, perhaps, the way we, we should. Uh, they make the point that in the national security equation, the part that uh, we can control is us and our capabilities, and we should not hide from a candid, objective analysis of, of exactly where we are. To me, the fundamental point here is that we're not where we should be. Or, to put it another way, the federal government is not fulfilling its first responsibility to the American people and to future generations to provide for the common defense. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that the story is, is all negative, as the report shows. We've definitely made up some ground recently on readiness, but there are still some significant gaps. We have accelerated our development of essential technologies and the applications of them, but we're not yet outpacing our adversaries the way we should. While Congress has given the department new tools and authorities, and in some instances they are being used uh, to greater effect, there's still too much resistance to change, both in the department and within Congress. So with, with this impressive body of work before us, uh, my mind naturally goes to, okay, what do we do about it? And so I thought I might offer on my way out of public life, as Dr. Holmes mentioned, that I might offer uh, some, a suggested to-do list uh, for Congress, for the executive and legislative branch, and for the national security community writ large. Uh, I've had to narrow it down to the top ten. Uh, obviously, I'm just going to be able to give some headlines, uh, but these are, to me, the ten things that uh, we should work on to, to try to improve our situation. Item number one is keep people first. 
the demographics, the skills we need, the importance of families in career decisions, the training and professional education required, the standards for promotion and assignment, all of that is changing. And yet, if we get the people part wrong, then none of the rest of it is going to matter very much. So, number one, I have to say, is keep people first. Number two is to provide stable, reliable funding that grows at 3 to 5% above inflation. I think the National Defense Strategy Commission had it exactly right. That's what it takes to defend the country. And if we choose to do less than that, then Congress and the President have to shoulder the blame for the consequences. And just because we're in one again, I have to say no CRs. Regardless of the amount at the, of the continuing resolution, it does damage every time. And I can give you a laundry list of specific ways that this CR will do damage if it goes past December. Number three, provide greater flexibility of funding. The days of writing hundreds of pages of requirements, uh, going out for bids on who can bid, who can build that precise thing, uh, having protests, and then buying thousands of them over years, those days are fastly, are, are fastly going by the wayside. Congress, especially the appropriators, have to get more comfortable with a pot of money being available for a particular purpose and then full transparency on how those funds are used. Flexibility is the key to help attract more suppliers to do business with the Department of Defense, to overcome that infamous valley of death, to enable more experimentation and prototyping, and to get technology into the field faster. Sticking to traditional approaches makes all of those things much harder. Item number four is be relentless in changing whatever needs to be changed to get the best technology that our country can produce into the hands of the warfighters faster. That means the whole resources of the nation have to be brought to bear. Private industry and academia as well as government private capital, as well as government funding. Now, we've made progress, and hopefully we'll make a little more progress in this year's NDAA that we're now negotiating in encouraging non-traditional suppliers to do business with DOD, to help small and mid-sized companies uh, bring their innovation to the table, uh, and, and to help all of that move at a greater rate of speed. But there is still a lot more that needs to be done. And I have to say, updating our approaches to things has to go beyond DOD. For example, a story in the Wall Street Journal last week said, China is no longer just leading the U.S. when it comes to 5G. It is running away with the game. And yet a few weeks ago, DOD proposed to gather ideas on, a, on 
other ways that we can deploy 5G and utilize spectrum, and you'd think the sky was about to fall in. National security is no longer just about planes and tanks and ships. Being willing to pursue new approaches on other issues are, it will make a huge difference in our country's ability to defend itself. And now we're down to number five. Uh, and that is, have a lot of public discussion about new technologies and their applications for defense. In 2011, uh, then-Speaker Boehner asked me to chair a task force on cybersecurity, where we had representatives from nine different committees. We were able to come together with a, a pretty good set of recommendations, but just as we were releasing our recommendations, we had the Snowden leaks, we had, Wiki, we had the, the WikiLeaks, uh, and everybody decided that uh, the government was reading your emails to grandma. That made it politically impossible to consider any sort of cyber-related legislation in Congress for several years. We, our adversaries do not have ethical concerns, but we can paralyze ourselves by misinformation or lack of understanding when it comes to artificial intelligence, robotics, uh, human performance enhancement, all sorts of issues. So I believe that it's important to have a little inoculation with hearings, uh, with uh, think tank seminars, with papers, with uh, a greater public discussion about these technologies, about what they mean and what they don't mean to help prevent this sort of paralysis from setting in in the future. Number six, understand and shore up the trusted defense industrial base. Again, I think we're making significant progress, partly because of COVID, in understanding where the suppliers and components of our various defense uh, systems come from and the vulnerability of some of those things. Uh, but, it, but it's complicated, and we haven't gotten our arms around the problem completely. I think our ind defense industrial base has to include companies, trusted companies, in allied and partner nations as well. But we need to understand it, and then it may require some targeted government actions to help ensure that it will be available to us. Number seven is nurture our alliances and partnerships. As Churchill said, there is only one thing worse than fighting with allies, and that is fighting without them. But the fundamental point is we cannot do everything ourselves. There is some repair that needs to occur in those relationships. We should be candid about our differences and about our expectations when it comes to allies and partners, but a lot of that candid talk can better be handled behind closed doors rather than out in the public. Item number eight on my list is don't neglect the nukes. I'm glad to see in this year's index that Heritage has set aside our strategic nuclear deterrent as a category in and of itself. 
they may be somewhat more charitable in their evaluation of where we are than I would be uh, because on both the weapons and the delivery systems, there is absolutely no margin for error. And to be fair, the index notes that. We have allowed everything to age out at once. And I've got to say, I am particularly concerned about where the Chinese are headed with their size and capability of their nuclear program. Like a lot of things related to the Chinese, we have probably been too complacent when we look at that issue. But all of our other defense efforts for the country rests upon a foundation of a safe, reliable, effective nuclear deterrent. And this is another one, that if we get this wrong, then probably the rest of these things is not going to matter much. Item number nine is make every effort to keep defense nonpartisan. Now look, there's always going to be differences on particular issues, but somehow, even through all of those differences, over the years, Congresses and presidents of both parties have been able to come together and enact a defense authorization bill for 59 straight years. Good Lord willing, we'll have number 60 here uh, before too long. But that fact in and of itself is important for allies and adversaries and especially for the men and women uh, who are risking their lives for us. They need to know that the country stands together behind them in support of their mission. Now, to do that, sometimes you've got to bite your tongue. Sometimes you have to accept some things you disagree with. Uh, sometimes we have to actually compromise. But we should never forget that the top goal of Russia and other adversaries is to divide us, to sow dissension. I don't worry about our ability to overcome any outside adversary. The only thing that keeps me up at night are the decisions we make for ourselves. The only ones who can defeat the United States are Americans ourselves. Item number 10. Every one of us must make a concerted effort to educate and remind each other the reasons that a strong defense is important. By any measure, the last 70 years has been a time of unmatched human progress. Life expectancy, living standards, poverty rate, the number of people with a say in their government, the number of people who have been killed in war, any metric you want to use highlights that the last 70 years has been special. And I believe all of that progress was made possible by two basic decisions that the United States made after World War II to keep a strong defense and to stay engaged in the world. And yet today, both of those decisions are under attack in both political parties. 
I'm afraid that too many of us have lost sight of what it takes to keep this unparalleled prosperity and security. Too many people don't realize it's not just our safety, it's our jobs, our quality of life, our whole society that depends upon the security that's provided by the U.S. military. Ronald Reagan said that all great change in America begins around the dinner table. So if I could wave a magic wand and only get one of the ten items that I am suggesting for my to-do list... It would be to have a conversation around every dinner table in America about what we've achieved over the last 70 years, about what it took to achieve it, the sacrifice that's been made, and the dangers of letting it all slip away. If we're negligent, I'm afraid that our children and maybe even ourselves are going to inhabit a world that is less prosperous, more dangerous, and that we could even see civilization start to slip backwards, as has happened before in history. The United States of America is the greatest force for good in the history of the world. We're the indispensable nation because Americans decided we had to be. The alternative was too terrible. And now we have to decide whether to continue or to abandon those two crucial decisions that have guided us with both parties for the last 70 years and has done so much, not just for ourselves, but for all of mankind. As as I depart Congress, I hope and I pray that we choose wisely. Thank you. Congressman Thornberry, thank you very much for that passionate reminder of how important national defense is to really do our American way of life. I mean, it goes, it touches everything uh, about our, our experience as Americans, our history, and of course our future. Um, we were talking, of course, uh, before we came on here shortly about uh, 2001, and I remember uh, on September 13th, I think it was, 2001, uh, downstairs in an auditorium before this auditorium was built, that I had to bring the Heritage Foundation staff together two days after the uh, attack. The smoke was still rising from the Pentagon at the time. Uh, they were people in the audience literally crying. Uh, it was a shock. And it was a similar situation where we had taken a vacation from the world for about a year, uh, for a decade rather, in the so-called peace dividend of the 1990s. Uh, we thought that uh, we could kind of come home and everything would go back to normal. And of course, the normal is precisely as you described it. We have to remain engaged. We have to remain strong. That is normal. That's what has given us peace for over 70 years. And I thank you very much for that, for that statement. Well, now we get to turn to a, a very special event. On behalf of the Heritage Foundation and our president, Mrs. K. Coles-James, it is my great pleasure today to, to inaugurate a new Heritage Foundation Award, an award that we call the Guardian of the Gate Award. 
The Heritage Foundation's Guardian of the Gate Award will honor distinguished careers of public service with an emphasis on strong support and supporters for our armed forces. But if you think about it, a gate is actually a two-way thing. Obviously, the things that are bad must be stopped getting past the gate, but you also have to let the good in as well, and they have to be able to come in freely, in some cases even be welcomed. A guardian, a guardian is constantly vigilant in meeting, the, in meeting this challenge by guarding the gate of our nation's interests. It is important to honor those that have carried this heavy responsibility throughout their careers and who have distinguished themselves in their charge as a guardian of the public trust. Now we can think of no better honor, honoree, to be the first recipient of the Heritage Foundation's Guardian of the Gate Award than Representative Mac Thornberry. Representative Thornberry, your many years of, of service to our country in Congress and your unwavering support for our nation's military make this award a unique and fitting tribute to your accomplishments. America is safer in the world because of you and because of your efforts. And we thank you for your dedication and for your leadership over the course of your very long career. You have been an inspiration to the Heritage Foundation's work, as you see here from the Military Index. It was very much inspired by the collaboration with you over the years. But we also look forward to your continued impact on national defense issues, even after you leave Congress. You have been a true guardian of the gate. So you please join me in picking up your award. We're going to shift on to the part of the program here where we talk about the index. Uh, what a great honor uh, it has been to have Congressman Thornberry with us, uh, especially at the end of a, such a stellar career. I look forward to, uh, as Dr. Holmes mentioned, you know, continued interaction, not only with the Heritage Foundation, but with the American people on the important topic of military strength. So what I would like to do is uh, talk a bit uh, about the index, uh, just very briefly, and then we'll get into what the index says about the state of military power. And what we try to keep in mind is that you can have a discussion about a ship, a plane, or a tank, and whether you want you know five of them or ten or what have you. But if that's absent context, you know what is out there in the world? Is it easy to work in the world? Is it more difficult to work in the world? Are your competitors uh, very aggressive or less so? That really tells you whether you need more military power or less. And so it's, it's, it's that context that we try to provide uh, within the construct of the index itself. So as has been mentioned in various ways, uh, we have a military for a certain reason. You know, it's not just for parades or for looking at or providing employment opportunities. It's really there to defend the country. And uh, going all the way back, I mean, if you've got any history buffs in the audience here, uh, Vegetius, I'm going to butcher the name there, but all the way back to the, uh, the 5th century A.D., uh, a Roman philosopher talked about, if you want peace, prepare for war. And, and various leaders and scholars have mentioned that in various ways for centuries. And, and when you think about defending the country, if we go back to our own constitution, uh, defending the country and keeping us safe is really one of the only few 
specified tasks of the federal government. It, it gets involved in a lot of things that it wants to do and that uh, play well with the popular uh, electorate. Uh, but one of the things, uh, very few things that it must do is to defend the country. And so when we talk about defense budgets, this isn't a nice-to-have thing. It's an obligatory function of government. And again, it drives our thinking about how we need to support it. We spend lots of money on our military, $700, $740 billion. Um, we uh, run deficits uh, because of that, uh, because of uh, the, uh, the great divide between tax revenue and income and how we're spending the money and the additional obligations we take on. But that's a lot of money. And so what we want to do here from Heritage is to explain to the American people what they're getting for their money. Are they getting a competent, credible, ready military that's of sufficient size? Uh, or is it not being spent well? Are there problems? And so we illustrate that within the index. Uh, we believe that in surveying the landscape, there is no other comparable uh, effort uh, undertaken by anyone, especially in the public domain, where time is spent by a number of scholars to bring together insights on the nature of the world, the nature of the military, uh, and to write this in an accessible way. Uh, it's uh, footnoted throughout. I'll give you some statistics here in just a minute. Uh, but we want to make the American public informed, to help make staffers and members of Congress informed, so that when we do have these debates, which are actually healthy and need to be heard uh, and need to be had, uh, people actually have some idea of what they're talking about. And we can come from a common frame of reference, uh, and uh, this, is, again, is another purpose for the index. Uh, I'm going to be going through a lot of slides here. Uh, I am in no way expecting our viewers uh, to try to look at all the little dots and dashes and numbers and graphs that you're going to see. All of these graphics are available on the web website, heritage.org slash military. Uh, a couple of ways, uh, tabs that are on there, easy to find. And so if you want to really dive into any one of these graphics, uh, just click on the link. It opens right up. You can download it, share it, what have you. But uh, by the numbers... 20 authors contributed their times and uh, talent to making this thing possible. Uh, nearly 2,000 footnotes. Uh, why is that such a big deal in this kind of scholarly world here? Uh, it's because if we're saying something and providing a data point or we're characterizing somebody in some way, you know, what is North Korea doing? What is the United States Army doing? What is Great Britain doing? We actually link that to a source so that you, the reader, uh, can take time and go into it if it really piques your curiosity and, and read the same thing that we're reading and, and perhaps come to your own uh, uh, different conclusion, but certainly your own conclusion. So all this footnoting is a really big deal to lend credibility and a reference component uh, to the index. Uh, it's uh, replete with graphics throughout from maps and charts and all sorts of things, tables, uh, 62 of those in addition to all the programs that are looked at as well. Uh, you've heard mention earlier today about uh, some of these major acquisition programs. Well, what is the status of those things? You know, are they on track? Are they producing as they should? And so we address those components uh, as well. Uh, since we have the index, uh, we distribute both hard copies and provide the entire thing online. What a useful mechanism to help inform the debate, right, to talk about things that are really important to national security and to the status and use of military power. So again, if I talk about a tank, well, what does that really mean? I mean, can I make more of them? Do I have an industrial base? Am I experimenting? 
do I have a training regimen uh, in place to make sure that the tank crew is effective? Uh, how does our tank relate to other tanks from other, other countries? And so in each uh, edition of the index, we provide uh, four to six essays uh, that address certain topics, whether it's an operational concept, uh, talent management, uh, mobility. So in this set right here, we have essays that have been written on the status of the American intelligence uh, community uh, on strategic mobility. John Fashing did a great essay. Uh, if you needed to get military power from the United States to where it's going to be used, how are we set for that? Uh, Dr. Andrew Michta uh, has provided us a, an excellent essay on alliances, uh, we talk a lot about the importance of allies and what they can contribute. Well, what is the nature of our current alliance structure? And so we've got a very easy-to-read essay on that. Uh, Jerry McGinn has provided one um, about uh, the defense industrial base and the status of its ability to surge production and to uh, make up for shortfalls that we might see. And finally, General McFarlane has addressed this idea of uh, joint experimentation. So if we have Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and others do they play well together? You know, are we developing ways to utilize military power uh, that's much more effective than it would be otherwise? And the world of joint experimentation is what that's all about. Who really understands it? Not many people commissioned an essay and did a fine job at addressing those sorts of things. I mentioned on programs. Uh, again, don't try to read the slide. Uh, you can download it and uh, look at it at your leisure, but for every major element, if it's an F-15 fighter or a Spruance-class destroyer, what is the status of that current capability? You know, how old is it? How many do we have? And do we have a new capability coming on the line uh, to replace those sorts of things? You know, is it being underfunded? Is it problematic? Or is it doing really well? So for each one of the services, 104 major programs, uh, we've made this uh, readily accessible to uh, the public and hope that you spend some time uh, looking at that. Finally, uh, as we talk about this front matter, it's really thinking about military power and understanding what that means. And for me, the big takeaways are always time, the temporal component, how long it takes to, uh, to actually do things in the world of military affairs, and acceptable risk. So if I had the ability to generate power overnight, then perhaps I'm willing to take some risk at not funding one thing in order to fund something else, because I know I can quickly catch up. But that's just not the reality of defense matters. It takes five years to build an aircraft carrier, two years to build uh, a surface warship. Uh, the Army can uh, disestablish a brigade combat team almost overnight to get it back together again, to make sure that it's organized and run well and that it's competent takes upwards of two and a half years. So this idea of time uh, really inf infuses the entire document. Uh, we know that, that in utilizing military power, this is always a political decision. But if you don't have the military available to use, that option has been taken off the table. And if the person you're trying to influence or shape or guard against uh, is not wanting to come to a table to talk about things in a very diplomatic way, uh, or if they want to try to impose an economic system on the world that's at, at uh, our disadvantage, and you don't have a military op option that would buttress diplomacy and that would make uh, aligning with the United States uh, a very good idea uh, economically, uh, then you find yourself uh, really shorthanded. So this thinking about military power, uh, how events in the world continue to confirm historical realities, 
that the world is a dynamic place, that you have competing interests and competing powers who are looking for their own room, their own access to resources, whether it's fisheries or gold mines or what have you, uh, it is going to result in friction and in countries and in regions pushing against each other. So if you want to shape things uh, in a direction that benefits you as a country and your friends and allies, if you want to deter bad behavior, if you want to mitigate risk uh, because you cannot uh, predict the future, you have to have some hedging strategy and a strong, capable military that, that meets uh, requirements, uh, again, that, that history shows are consistent across time is, is one way to deal with that world, and we think it's a very good way to deal with that world. Again, if you want peace, preparing for war so it deters a competitor from taking action against you, reassures allies, and makes sure that we have jobs and prosperity and security here at home, and we help to shape a more orderly world that benefits so many people around the world. So if you were to go to the executive summary in this document, uh, we would quickly highlight uh, the pieces we talk about. Uh, the world is an operating environment. Is it easy or difficult for the United States to do the things that it needs to do to defend its interests? Can you reassure an ally? Well, if you can't get there or you don't have a military presence there, uh, they're not going to put a lot of stock in political or diplomatic promises because you have nothing to back them up. So we look at the status of our allies and partners. We look at our uh, experience in working in various regions. Uh, you know, again, is it easy or hard? And right now, the world, from that perspective, is a very favorable place. We do have lots of friends. We do have lots of experience. We have Americans that are serving their country in foreign lands, and so that uh, eases or aids the ability that when we do have to respond to a crisis of some type, you're better able to do that than if we were still uh, stuck here isolated at home and you had to create new capabilities abroad. In terms of the threat environment, uh, we're sure that everybody tracks the news headlines. Uh, how rapidly is China developing and expanding its military capabilities? What has Russia been uh, in, up to in the Middle East, uh, specifically in Syria and in northern Africa and in Crimea, where it took that away from uh, the country of Ukraine and is supporting separatist rebels and its aggression in the North Atlantic and the Arctic region? So um, we see these big major countries that are very restive, uh, they are very confident and aggressive in pushing forward uh, their own capabilities. And regardless of their economic situation back home, for them it appears that it's important enough to dedicate a significant number, uh, amount of their national resources to develop new military capabilities and improving. So militarily, uh, they're incorporating artificial intelligence, unmanned systems and robotics, hyper-velocity munitions, uh, fifth-generation stealth aircraft, all these things that we talk about here in the United States that are important to the conduct of modern warfare to prepare for the future, our competitors are doing the same thing. So what we find across the board with China, Russia, uh, North Korea, and Iran in particular are, are very confident, forward-leaning, uh, aggressive regional actors and so we view that uh, the threat environment from that standpoint is high. Does it mean war tomorrow? I don't think so. Part of that is because we have had a competent, capable military that keeps bad actors from doing bad things. But as you would see your own military power decline, it creates opportunities for others to step into that breach. As far as our own military, um, 
we don't mean to uh, diminish uh, the skills, competence, willingness to serve of anybody in uniform. In fact, it's the opposite. Uh, when you have a small military, uh, the people who inhabit that military and make it work become that much more important. So at the individual level, at the small unit level, at leadership levels, et cetera, an incredible United States military. So when we talk about uh, a marginal U.S. military, it's comparing that military against what the total requirement is. Where do you want to be in the world? What kind of posture do you want to have? Do you want to be using new equipment or old equipment? Or how is your readiness level? So in that standpoint, looking at the desire from our standpoint of having a military uh, establishment that can be in more than one place at a time, so that if you have a Russia problem and you have a China problem, we don't want to be limited to just focusing on the one. Because if you do find yourself having to get engaged and it takes all that you have to do that engagement, then the areas where you cannot be present become major strategic risks. So this two-conflict capacity force allows you to deter. If you have to respond, you can do so effectively, while also continuing to deter opportunistic behavior in other parts of the world. So when we talk about marginal, it really has to do with capacity, the age of the equipment that our military forces are using, and the level to which they have been able to train to not only keep current skills sharp, but also to develop new skills as new equipment capabilities come in. Some of the things we've just talked about, directed energy, robotics, those sorts of things. So what we have seen overall is that over the past three years in particular, tremendous gains in readiness. So when you think about shifting from a purely counterterrorism sort of focus, uh, going up against enemies that have no army, no navy, no air power capabilities, the U.S. military could pretty much do what it wanted to do, with the risk really being on the ground and person-to-person contact. But in the big scheme of things, you can flow forces, logistical resupply, use your satellites, uh, bombers, all those sorts of things at very, very low risk. Now that we think about this return to great power competition, that's a whole different ballgame. It requires different ways of thinking, different sorts of training and flying and the types of formations that we would put into the field. So the uh, funding that we have had up to this point has been been, uh, invested in trying to make the current military we have as capable as possible, Uh, but modernization has usually um, uh, been neglected because of that. So quickly going through this, again, don't try to read the small print. We talk about allies, and if you've known, there's been a lot of push on NATO members as an example. We could also be talking about Japan and South Korea and other great allies as well, and trying to push them along to invest more in their own defense capabilities. This quad chart is taken from uh, NATO spending data. It shows that there has been improvement in those that are meeting the NATO objective or goal of 2% of GDP dedicated to defense, and how much of that has been on modernization. So improvements, and yet most of the members are still lagging uh, way behind. Greater investment would mean that they are more secure and more confident, and it actually lessens the burden on the United States 
of, of trying to help everybody else out in key regions, not idealistically, although that's a part of it, but because American jobs and prosperity and security back home are dependent on that as well. So again, an example of us digging into the data and providing some insights into the nature of things. Here's a graphical depiction that's map-based on some of the spending. And it's interesting to see that those countries who are closest to uh, what they consider real threats are more serious about the investments that they make uh, in their own national security posture. The United States, separated by massive oceans, physically separated uh, from some of these very troubled regions, it's a bit more of a challenge to convince the American public and lawmakers on Capitol Hill that uh, necessary investments in defense are needed. But if we were on the front lines uh, facing a competitor with a contiguous border like a China or a, or a, a Russia, uh, the American public might think a little bit differently. So again, warfare can unfold very quickly. We have to push uh, military forces at great range. And when our allies aren't doing what they should be doing, uh, it makes it more of a challenge for just about everybody. Turning to the threat section, these are, again, representative uh, graphics or depictions of the nature of the world. As we walk through each region, uh, being Europe, the Middle East, and the Indo-Pacific, we see what these major competitors are up to. Uh, China has really been busy in what they call their Belt and Road Initiative, uh, developing new trading relationships, new military presence uh, in uh, Africa and the Middle East and, and up into uh, portions of Asia. And they are investing heavily in this sort of capability. I mean, uh, what we've shown here on the map is just a colored representation of physical activities on the ground. So to think that the United States could stay home and the world remains a nice, peaceful place with lots of trading partners, and we don't have to invest much in that, is just really nonsense, right? We have to accept the world as it is, and if we mean to maintain a positive environment or shape something that would be challenging in a more positive direction, you have to be engaged. But our competitors are focused, they're capable, and they're very active. Uh, as we would look at a country like Iran, 3,000 ballistic missiles, They've got them for some reason, and they have them pointed in certain directions. We can't ignore the improved ranges and capabilities of these sorts of weapon systems. And again, it helps to inform our understanding of the capability, capacity, and readiness of the U.S. military if they were to have to go into a region uh, like this. North Korea provides another example. Uh, I believe in uh, March alone for this year, conducted nine major missile tests. Uh, developing a submarine-launched ballistic missile. Their ballistic missile capabilities can now easily range the totality of the United States itself. So whether they've got 10 nuclear weapons, 100 nuclear weapons, or growing to 1,000, it is clearly a priority for the North Korean regime to invest what resources they have into these very capable long-range offensive weapon systems. Again, it's just another indicator that our competitors aren't standing still uh, and the United States just can't afford to do that uh, either. Uh, as we turn to, again, a, a summary of these threats, we talk about two things. One, their actual capability. Do they have modern, capable systems, and does it appear that they're effective? And then we look at their behavior as well. So if they were quiet, perhaps not as big of, a, of an issue, although behavior can change on a dime. Are they much more aggressive? And so this is the type of chart that we use to provide a summary for this. And what we see, especially in that bottom bullet that I have there, is that competitors often exploit opportunities where the U.S. is absent 
or we don't have much capability. They don't take a break. And unfortunately for our country, and again, domestic issues back here at home, we can't afford to take a break either. Does that mean we're always on a war footing? Absolutely not. But what you're telling competitors and how you're reassuring allies is that you have the means and the wherewithal and the will to engage when and where you need to uh, to support our interests and those of our uh, alliance structure. Since we get into the military services now specifically, uh, it's all about money. Uh, money not just for money's sake, but funding makes it possible to replace old equipment that gets worn out. Stable funding allows an Army brigade to go to the field and train as it should train, or it allows an Air Force pilot to get in uh, to his, um, uh, working, his or her working aircraft uh, that has been fueled up, has spare parts you know, that have been applied, and go out and fly the types of training flights that they would need to actually be effective in combat. So as has been discussed a little bit earlier, we see this divergence between how much is being spent on the military and the effect of inflation, and how we have really underinvested for a number of years. And this isn't just something over the last six or ten. This is actually a 30-year story. At the end of the Cold War, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, we had the happy decade of the 1990s, where we basically didn't spend a lot on anything in terms of modernization. It's almost ten years without buying new fighter aircraft. And yet you're continuing to fly those airplanes to keep skills up and so you're prematurely wearing out those aircraft without something uh, coming in. 2001 happens with the terrorist attacks, and now we've got 15 to 20 years of constant operations dealing with terrorism organizations in very distant parts of the world. So you're continuing to use up those resources that we did have and equipment that was procured in the 1980s and 90s, but not really replenishing those accounts and replacing equipment that really needs to be done. So as we walk through the various services, the Army is a great example. They have really dedicated themselves to increasing readiness of the force that they have. Knowing that manpower is very, very expensive, they have tried to better um, improve uh, the skill sets and the readiness of the uh, brigades that they do have, and they have just done a phenomenal job. In some ways, we could think that perhaps they're too ready. I mean, you can spend a dollar on having another soldier or another unit uh, more ready when perhaps you have a sufficient number of ready brigades to deal with the world as it is today and not be spending that dollar on replacing uh, a very old piece of armored equipment, which is a bit more problematic. So readiness-wise, the Army is doing great. We think that they have probably uh, improved their readiness perhaps a bit much at the expense of modernization programs and certainly in capacity. Again, it's difficult to increase the capacity of the military service. Uh, we know that based on the historical utilization of Army forces, it takes about 21 brigades to fight a major war. If you wanted to have twice that so that you could do that and still be able to deter, you would double that for 42 add in some rounding error, some buffer for training, and just units that aren't available. And that's how we get to our number of 50. But right now, the Army has 31, uh, far short of what we believe the Army really needs to have. How would they be able to grow? Certainly, there's a recruiting challenge. There is a funding challenge, absolutely. And it's something that Army leadership is very aware of. In terms of modernization, one illustrative graph of many that are in the Army section, where it talks about how competitors are making major investments in improving long-range fires capabilities. 
whether it's an artillery round, uh, a medium-range missile, you know, something along those lines. And the United States military has not kept pace. So what this means on the battlefield is your opponent can engage you at a greater distance, and you can't even get close enough to bring your firepower to bear. So again, technology brings new capabilities into the marketplace. Uh, people use those things to see if they can improve their military posture. Our competitors have been serious about this, and we just haven't made the same sort of progress over the last uh, 10 or 15 years. One more example, uh, this is about the Army in particular, but it's illustrative of the services writ large, and that has to do with the cost of inflation. If you keep funding level when it goes to a service, and yet inflation is on the rise, the purchasing power of, of that dollar that you've received just doesn't get you as much as it used to have. We actually went back with a study to 1970, the Vietnam era, and found that the price of a tank has increased at three times the rate of inflation. Ships and aircraft have increased five times the rate of inflation. And if you wanted to equip the average soldier with a modern optics, communications equipment, a new weapon system, today it takes 16 times the rate of inflation to equip that soldier as it did back in 1970. And we think, to Congressman Thornberry's point, the American public is just not apprised of how these things are occurring within the world of national security. And we find ourselves today with a military that's just too small for what we expect it to do, and it continues to use old equipment. Here's an example from the Navy. Uh, this is uh, various uh, types of ships, and it shows how much lifespan is associated with each one of these platforms. What we have today is a Navy of uh, fewer than 300 ships, and over half of those ships are greater than 20 years old. So I don't know how many of you take uh, vacations in a car that's 20 years old. Most people wouldn't want to do that. But our young sailors are out there operating equipment that was bought 20 and 30 years ago. <clears throat> so on this line, there's like a 10-year mark. You think in your own mind about what might happen over the next 10 years. And if it takes two or three years to build a new surface combatant platform, if we have to introduce new Columbia-class submarines to replace aging Ohio-class submarines, again, this element of time and stable funding does not paint a pretty picture. And then when we think about the world, uh, I had mentioned this a bit earlier, it takes about three weeks uh, to get naval power from the United States to a key region where it might be used, in the Indian Ocean, Persian Gulf, South China Sea. So ships can move, at, let's say 30 knots, 35 knots or so nautical miles per hour. So how many hours do you need to cross an ocean that might be 3,000 miles wide? So again, this element of time, that if you don't have forces forward deployed, it takes a good long while to get them there. Of that 300 ships we have in the Navy, only about 100 are available on a daily basis. Of those 100, perhaps 60 are deployed into the Western Pacific. So 60 United States ships going up against the Chinese Navy of 350 ships, quickly growing to 400 in the next few years. And also, because it's their home terrain, they have all the land-based capabilities that can affect maritime operations. So when you start juggling these numbers and you see what we have, its age and capability, we soon find ourselves at a five or six to one disadvantage when you compare our deployed military capabilities with those of competitors that would be going up against. On the Air Force side, 
it's 47% the capacity, so just under half the capacity or size of the Air Force that we used during Desert Storm in uh, 1991. Uh, in 2017, it was the first time in the history of the United States Air Force that they spent more on research and development than in buying new airplanes. So when we consider for a moment that the average Air Force fighter is 30 years old, what the Air Force has decided to do is focus 20 years down the road in their R&D efforts and holding them at risk current modernization to deal with current problems with an Air Force half the size of what they used to have. So we think that that is problematic. We think that there is a reality in the services in terms of embracing what, care, what great power competition implies, but they haven't really made the changes necessary uh, to come up to speed on that. Uh, they're currently uh, unable to uh, meet the full refueling requirements given their aged fleet of uh, KC aircraft, and yet the KC-46, the follow-on, has significant problems. So the Air Force is still deciding to retire existing refuelers before the replacement uh, is really in the field, and we have to question some of the decision-making processes behind that. Uh, one more example on flight hours. If you're not driving, you're not going to be a good driver. If you're not shooting, you're not going to be a good marksman. If you're not flying an aircraft, then you don't really gain and regain and sustain those skills of being competent in a combat environment, to be able to put ordnance on target, to defend yourself, or fight against an opposing aircraft. And yet what we have seen is a decline in the number of flight hours per Air Force pilot for the, next, for the past couple of years. So we would just want to wake folks up to the reality of that. During the Cold War, uh, Air Force uh, pilots, naval pilots, would fly upwards of 200-plus hours a year. If they were at 150 or so, they were considered not really deployable into a potential theater of war. But that number is where we're at today, and it's on the decline. So again, the individual people are fantastic. The rate at which we are funding the military to give them better equipment, the ability to train at the level that they need to train at and to have larger capacity so we aren't prematurely wearing out the force is where the problem is and why we have assessed we have a, a marginal military at the moment. The Marine Corps is a fascinating story and it's doing its own great reorientation. It feels that given the size of the service, where does the United States really need capability? And it has to be within this weapons engagement zone, the ability of Chinese forces to really dominate its near abroad. You might hear military terminologists talk about the first island chain. If you looked at a map around the South China Sea, there's just this area that's kind of bounded by mainland and islands and all. And because of modern weapons and those capabilities, it's extraordinarily difficult to operate in that kind of world. And the Marines have decided they're going to figure out how to do that. But recognizing that funding is probably not going to increase from their perspective, they're going to have to make these payments of divesting old equipment that isn't as relevant in that kind of warfare in order to develop new capabilities and get new equipment. So you're training, trading current things for the types of things that you think are going to be essential in this kind of distributed warfare environment. When I was in the Marines some years ago, uh, the, the infantry battalion numbers were 27, 27 infantry battalions. The Budget Control Act in 2011 kicked in, dropped to 24, then down to 21. They rebuilt uh, back to 24, but the Commandant has indicated that they're going to reduce again to 21. So again, when we look at averages in warfare, 
where the Marine Corps is needed to invest 15 or 16 battalions on all the supporting infrastructure to fight big battles, if you only have 21, it really doesn't give you the ability to go big and have sustained operations in the face of opposition over time. Another indicator. Uh, as uh, Congressman Thornberry had mentioned, we really spend a lot of time looking at nuclear capabilities. And this chart shows you when a strategic system was introduced into the force, when it was projected to exit, those would be the little circles, and bring it up on your computer and look at it there at home, and where it is today. <clears throat> Virtually the entirety of the U.S. nuclear weapons and delivery platform uh, capabilities are outdated, and yet we continue to extend them because we continue to have this debate within the United States about nuclear power, nuclear weaponry, uh, nuclear deterrence theories, and whether or not this remains viable. For me, an indicator would be, and the defense team here, if China and Russia and North Korea are investing heavily in nuclear capabilities, and Iran appears to be an aspirational nuclear power, there must be value to that. And so if we want to continue to extend the nuclear assurance and deterrence umbrella for our allies and provide nuclear deterrence against those who might uh, wish to impose their own will, we simply have to uh, modernize our nuclear capabilities. As we move to ballistic missile defense, uh, a great graphic that shows where we have capabilities and, more importantly, where we do not. If you wanted to try to get a weapon before it gets into a very hard-to-engage zone in outer space or when it's screaming into the target, you'd like to get it when it's still on the platform or in that boost portion of uh, its rise or its ascent into orbit. But right now we have no capability. There is a practical reason for that. How do you get in close enough uh, so that the weapon that you would want to use against the target is able to do that, but there's also a political problem. That means that you would be executing a strike on someone's sovereign territory, which seems to be a bit different than taking out a missile in mid-flight. But the problem becomes more pronounced the further along that ballistic missile gets uh, toward a target, perhaps in the United States, and we feel that we have a real shortfall in this boost phase ballistic missile defense option, which really needs to be looked at. Finally, as we look at space capabilities, what an extraordinary shift from almost a pure military world to commercial launch vehicles. We are lifting more things in the coming year with our commercial partners here in the United States than we have ever seen before. It's really the good news story of this past year of 2020 with excellent trend lines. Um, it's still a sliver, though. I think uh, the congressman had mentioned uh, in shifting uh, U.S. Air Force personnel associated with space operations into the new Space Force, but that's just half of what exists in the Department of Defense. You still have another 20,000 personnel in the Army and the Navy that we would need to account for in some way if we're going to have a comprehensive, cohesive sort of space capability, and that doesn't address the different agencies and the intelligence community that really ought to be looked at as well. But it's a good news story overall. In conclusion, uh, I like to ask or address when we're talking with audiences, my colleagues do as well, people are usually looking for easy answers to very difficult problems. Like I mentioned, this is a 30-year story that uh, post-2001, our military was consuming every dollar it received in current operations. Munitions, fuel, replacing blown-up equipment, dealing with uh, the medical problems that come with uh, men and women in harm's way. And so not a lot was spent 
modernizing uh, U.S. military capabilities. So what we need to do moving forward is just acknowledge to the public that easy answers aren't here, <clears throat> that uh, stopping the business of continuing resolutions, which actually disrupts funding, disrupts programs, and actually wastes money over time, is something we really need to get away from. There's also the reality that the world just doesn't sit on its haunches waiting for the United States to do something. There are other agendas in play. It's a very dynamic, a non-static sort of affair. And there are always new opportunities and new challenges that we have to account for. So to think that we bought one airplane in one year or somehow we have fixed the military problem uh, just doesn't make sense. Each new year brings new opportunities and new challenges, and our defense uh, spending patterns really need to account for that. Uh, the military is an essential tool. Not that we want to be dominant uh, in every uh, measure, not that we use our military as a bludgeon, but the military, if it's seen as capable and ready to respond to challenges to U.S. interests and to those of our allies, is actually a backstop, and it enhances the power of diplomacy, and it assures trading partners, it makes sure the United States has access to markets, that, that people can move freely and not be challenged by countries like China who might want to dominate and impose their own uh, weird ideologies and surveillance state sorts of things. Importantly, effective military power cannot be constituted, right? It can't be generated on very short notice. If we have one aircraft final assembly facility for the F-35 in Fort Worth, Texas, that's the only facility of its kind in the entire country or, in fact, the world. If there is only one shipyard that builds aircraft carriers, it tells you, kind of gives you an idea of how quickly we would be able to respond to replace something that might be damaged. And, and the answer to that is not very quickly at all. So military affairs take time. They take uh, consistent, uh, sustained funding and the attention of Congress and any administration that might be into office. How much military power we need is very dependent on the capabilities of our allies. They have been underinvesting, and it's very much dependent on the capability and behavior of our competitors, much more capable today than what they have been in the past, much more aggressive and confident in trying to impose themselves on regions than they have in the past. So at present, we believe the military, while the military we have is populated with great people, and really been focused on readiness and improving that, which we have seen in large measure over the last two or three years, it remains too small for the world as it is and the tasks that are before it. It is still saddled with old equipment that has to be recapitalized and replaced, and that will take sustained funding. Everything from the new bomber, the B-21, to the uh, Columbia-class uh, submarine that will replace the old Ohio-class, uh, new ships coming in, and that would be in addition to New things like unmanned systems, directed energy, hypervelocity munitions, all the things that we talk about uh, future war will be like, they aren't here yet. And so it appears that conventional capabilities today remain as important as they ever have been. So that's the message we have for this year's 2021 index. The world is a pretty good place to operate in. Our competitors are much more capable and aggressive than they have been over the last several years. The U.S. military is doing the absolute best it can with the resources it has, but it's probably two-thirds the size that it should be. It needs to replace aging equipment, and it needs to be able to train so that the people we have are able to do what we expect them to do at lower risk and greater effectiveness. 
So I think, uh, John, you had mentioned no questions on that. Uh, we appreciate your time and attention today. Again, heritage.org slash military. Everything I just talked about is in there in highly readable form. It's a wonderful website. It's attracted something like 3.3 million uh, viewers or page views over the last uh, few years, and we ask you to uh, really check that out. And uh, these briefing slides, if anybody has an interest in them, will also be posted to the website when the final video, this uh, particular presentation, is posted in permanent form. So again, thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you to Congressman uh, Thornberry for his uh, career uh, effort and work supporting the country. Uh, God bless and good day.